It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au, 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me as always is Matt Grantham. Matt, how are you? Very good, Anthony. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Who do we have today? And today in the studio, we're going to be speaking with Genevieve Simpson, who is a government relations specialist at Western Power, who's been investigating policies that affect the deployment of small-scale solar on the grid, and she joins us from Perth today. Hello, Genevieve. Hello, guys. Before we do start, I do have to mention that I will be speaking in my capacity as a former PhD student at the University of Western Australia, not in my role at Western Power. But I will hopefully be talking about my research and being able to provide some of advice and insights that I learned from that process. Thank you very much, Genevieve. So if you could just tell us a little bit, Genevieve, about your background in renewable energy and a bit about your PhD and perhaps how it came about. Excellent. So um, I started my life in the workforce at what was called the Sustainable Energy Development Office, working for the WA government. And I was working mostly around solar water heating policy, but took a particular interest in what was happening around the feed-in tariff. And there were some really interesting questions that were coming out from the policy branch about ideas around equity and about some of these ideas of cross-subsidisation between consumers, some ideas around kind of the effectiveness of regulating industry um, and how people were satisfied with their systems. And that really led to me kind of thinking about whether or not I wanted to look into those ideas in detail. And I stayed in the public sector for about three years and then decided that it was something I did want to investigate. So I started my PhD at the University of Western Australia in 2012, looking at those kind of key ideas in terms of community members and their experience with renewable energy and interactions with industry and government policies. So, so you got that PhD, did you, Genevieve? I do, yes. yes. Congratulations. Five years? Order. Five years ain't bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's quicker than yeah, some people. manageable. <laughs> um, so, Genevieve, I just want to sort of put a context so that people can see how this sort of relates back to the real world here. Because, yeah. you know, solar deployment, obviously people are looking at it. And to just sort of put a case study out there that people might be able to relate to, there are people in various parts of the grid who might go from periods where they, say, apply for some solar, 12 months passes, they have a baby, get married, something happens, you know, they get it approved, but then 12 months later they apply again and then it suddenly gets knocked back. And then another 12 months passes and it perhaps gets approved again because of some other constraint on the grid. So this is something from a consumer point of view that is really difficult to understand and grapple with. And even from the network point of view, there's going to be times when solar may, for example, add value to their network by, you know, shoring it up. And there's going to be times where it requires additional investment to deal with that solar. So 
we're dealing with a very dynamic sort of environment here. And, and I'd also like to sort of direct uh, in, any of our uh, listeners to an article that you wrote in Renewal Economy called Networks Push Back on Small-Scale Solar, But Why? So that's sort of uh, if there's some nice pictures on there that are going to describe some of the dynamics we've got here. But if you could go through for us, Genevieve, some of those four factors you identified, you know, and how they relate to that, you know, that consumer, if you like, that might be wanting to put solar on but can't. Yeah, absolutely. So it was something that I noticed at conferences around Australia that some people were talking to me about how although there were all of these incentives available for solar energy, that they were still finding it difficult in some areas to install electricity um, PV systems. And in particular, we've got some regional areas in Western Australia that now have moratorium on systems, so they can't put any additional solar on unless they've got kind of really complicated battery systems. So I think there was a lot of kind of questioning about how this happened and what it means for consumers and kind of who was in charge of that decision making. So I did a lot of discussions with people from the renewable energy industry, um, members of government, network operators, consumers to talk to them about their experiences. And it really came to me that there are about four reasons that were really driving that pushback that um, network operators might be having on solar energy. And one of them, the first and, and kind of the, the definitely most tangible is just that there are constraints on the networks being able to attach more solar onto the network. So there are technical difficulties within, that network operators have to address when they get to a certain level of solar, particularly when you're talking in regional areas on thin feeder lines and that kind of thing. But in a lot of cases, we know that those technological solutions are available. So that was kind of within the second reason was that a lot of the network operators don't have the funding available specifically to deal with um, addressing the problems around adding additional penetration to the network. And that was really something that, that I think even some politicians had a lot of sympathy for. Western Australia is no longer a boom town and we have to be careful about where we spend public funds and given our our utilities here are publicly funded, thinking about where those costs go. And that kind of then leads into the third idea, which was about a lack of government priorities that, that network operators and other utilities don't really know, have a lot of confidence in where governments will want them to start pushing in new directions for things like renewable energy adoption. So, yeah, a lot of the utilities, well, some of the utilities that I talk to, they seem to be a little bit blind in terms of different um, scales for making decisions. So they have to respond on a daily basis to ministerials. They have five-year planning processes. They've got budget periods that they have to consider. So trying to be able to grapple with those different timelines and kind of a lack of oversight from the government in terms of a broad objective kind of limits that. And then the fourth and final was kind of an extension on that was just cultures within energy utilities. And this was in particular uh, members of industry and government were telling me that they felt in some cases that there was a risk-averse engineering culture that was happening within network operators that prevented them from really wanting um, to accept as much penetration of solar as the network could handle. And I think there was a, a lot of empathy for that as well because there was an understanding that if anything does go wrong, it's not going to be individual householders that are going to be pulled up on it. It's going to be the network operator. But that kind of fourth and final one was sitting under these layers of technical problems and financial problems and a lack of drive and vision. 
so yeah, so that was kind of like the four reasons that, that seemed to be uh, based on my discussions with community, industry and government to be driving that pushback. So Genevieve, if we can just sort of unpack some of them in a little bit more detail there, there's been reports that the CSIRO have said that, you know, that, that 40% penetration is about right for some areas. What did you find, and you mentioned obviously at long feed as these things change, but what can you tell us about that overall sort of solar percentage that, that you uncovered there? Is 40% about right, what the CSIRO have, have discussed? Look, as I said, it, I think it really depends on where you're talking about within the network. And, you know, the CSIRO does most of its modelling looking at the NEM, which has a, a kind of a much more integrated mesh-based network compared to some of the, the regions that Western Australia has to deal with. So something like 40%, and I'm, I have to point out that I'm not an engineer, but something like 40% might be absolutely no problems in the, in the city centre where you've got um, a lot of transformers to deal with changes in voltage um, and where you've got kind of multiple feeder lines that can pick, pick up um, a lost load if something does go wrong. But I think we have to be mindful of uh, situations being a bit more different uh, when you get to the end of feeder lines and when you have particularly something like Horizon Power in Western Australia that has a lot of what we you know, are now being called microgrids and they provide great opportunities for renewable energy, but um, they do have challenges in terms of small lines and, and voltage drops on the end of those lines when you get out to regional areas. So I think the CSIRO's work is a great starting point and I think we're starting to see more and more people within utilities talking about wanting to challenge the amount of penetration of solar that they can get on their network. But yeah, getting to, to kind of a, a single answer, I don't know if we'll ever get to a, a perfect percentage, but it's a matter of, of trying to get up the enthusiasm to be able to, to increase those percentages where we can. And with regards to some of the sort of strategy and regulatory pushbacks, did you get any indication that there may be, and this is a, a, a difficult sort of question to answer, but that there may be some movement in the future? You've got a lot of moving parts in terms of managing these problems, but something like uh, you know, the implications for what tariff reform might do for small-scale small solar, not just sort of on the feed-in tariff side, but maybe on some flexibility in pricing, time-of-use pricing that could be you know, implemented in parts of the network to slurp up this power in the middle of the day. Did you oh, assess any of that sort of stuff? Oh, there's so many options for the future, and, and I think we're, we've also got to add the obvious um, advantages for the batteries being able to, you know, take out some of that solar in the middle of the day and reduce problems around voltage overload on the grid. Don't beat me um, off the mark, Genevieve. Sorry, <laughs> that one, what was that? I said, don't beat me off the mark. <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt's got a whole Matt's got a whole section here. I'll go back to tariffs. So we're going to we're going to assume there's no batteries at the moment that they're very expensive okay, and they'll so never we, come onto the market. Right. We, we, okay. We, so we, we're assuming there's no batteries. There's no batteries. Um, they'll never happen at this point in this discussion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I mean something like the feed-in tariff. Western Australia, like most states, we had a premium feed-in tariff, and and that was higher than our um, regulated retail tariff here. And now we have what we call the Renewable Energy Buyback Scheme, which is really just cost of generation for electricity. And they both send really different messages to consumers. So people in the premium feed-in tariff benefit by exporting as much of their generation as possible and shifting load into the evening, which we know isn't the greatest in terms of the network. Um, alternatively, the REBS prioritises kind of daytime use, which is it's better for the network and hopefully better for the consumer. But either way, when you're looking at solar, we are seeing that peak being pushed out and lowered over time. 
So that has been a, a great response in terms of solar. But in the absence of batteries, if we are assuming that they're too expensive and no one's ever going to install them, what we will see is just that peak pushed out into daylight after daylight hours. And the network really has a whole new problem that it's got to respond to. So um, tariffs are amazing in terms of being able to provide guidance to consumers about when they should consume. Um, but they will have flow-on effects for other parts of the market, which um, often I think we have to kind of play with a tariff for a little while and see how it plays out and then make further decisions around the tariff leading forward. So I think when you're talking about regulation, initially when it was just this idea of kind of large generation um, and network end users at the end of a distribution line, it was really easy to make regulation decisions. But we've got so many moving parts now, so many new technologies, and we really also just don't know how consumers are going to respond. Um, even things like you know, a lot of consumers are oversizing their systems now and the implications that has for the network and for their payback period. Um, so I think, yeah, in terms of regulation, it's really going to be difficult in the future. We're going to have to constantly update and maintain and think about how we can build in flexibility into our regulation and tariff structures. Right. I wanted to ask a, a question on, on the culture side. In energy circles, they talk a lot about the death spiral where the fact yeah. that cost is, is things are costing more, so people will put on solar, which means the, the cost of energy goes up. That means more people want to get solar. But is all there almost a death spiral with personnel within energy companies? Because we speak to so many people on this show who used to work for a big energy major or one of those, and then they go, then I saw the light. And I left, right? So, mm-hmm. so what does that do for the people that are left? What does that do for the culture of, 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 of who's decided to stick around? You're sort of talking a Darwinian yeah, evolution. It's, it's, a, it's a death spiral of innovation within these network companies. And how would you yeah. fix it, Genevieve? <laughs> yeah, how would you I, fix I think it? that's a really interesting question. Look, I, I think people go into either networks or go into to private energy companies because they love energy and they're really interested. And I think that people move out of businesses for all kinds of reasons. I was talking to people who were in the solar industry and they were feeling like they were having seen the light and wanting to move into something like network, something that was more secure because they were sick of, you know, to use another phrase that that has been panned about like Despire and talking about the solar coaster and that they couldn't rely on kind of incentives, they couldn't rely on regulations and that was making their life difficult. So I think it doesn't kind of matter what area you're in. This is such a volatile environment right now and there's the opportunity that wherever you work, uh, there will be something that makes it difficult to deal with. And I think that, you know, I worked in public sector and there were very clever people there it's eight years now since I started there. I'm still friends with people that I worked with there. Half of them have moved on. Half of them are still there and still trying to make some kind of movement, some kind of gains in that area. And now I'm you know, in Western Power and I'm seeing the same thing. And I don't think it's a bad thing that people move from public sector to utility to private industry and then back and forth. I think that every time that happens, you get some insight into the way another organisation works. You get to know contacts. Um, you can break down some of those barriers because I think the biggest problem when I was talking to people about culture 
was this idea that the utilities might be this black box, that you had no idea what was happening beyond sending in a letter to you know, an advisor or beyond putting in a connection application. But I think the more you get this cross-fertilisation happening between agencies, utilities, private industry, even people who are kind of advocating for parliamentary positions, when you get that cross-fertilisation, I think you get more ideas and you kind of, um, you know, a rising tide, you know, rises all ships or, um, you know, I think there's, there's benefits to that. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Show and we're speaking to Genevieve Simpson who's recently completed a PhD looking at the implications for more small-scale solar on the grid. Genevieve, now, moving on, one of my favourite topics, batteries. You've <laughs> mentioned before, we're, we've, we've had the first part of the discussion in complete absence of any battery technology, just looking at the implications of what small-scale solar looks like. Given those pushbacks you've identified, how does the dynamic of lower-cost batteries change that pushback model? Look, I think there's real advantages for particularly network operators with batteries. Being able to use batteries to reduce peak load, which we know is a huge driver of network costs. I think that batteries are uh, a huge potential in terms of being able to help out networks where they might not have seen the same assistance from PV on their own. And then really the challenge just comes in and how utilities try to make the best use of batteries for their own benefits acknowledging that they're really, really the batteries are for the best use of the customers. And I think that it's, I mean, I mean West Australia is probably difficult from other parts of the country in that our network utility is owned by the, um, the people of Western Australia. So doing the best thing for the customers is always something that's in mind in Western Australia in some way, shape or form, even if that means it's just kind of ministerial oversight. But I think, yeah, when it comes to batteries, it, it has the potential to be great for networks and it also has uh, potential to be great for consumers. So it's just kind of managing the kind of the regulations around that and I'm sure that your listeners would be quite familiar with kind of what's happening in terms of the standards around batteries and trying to find um, a, a middle ground that kind of makes sure batteries are safe but can use and utilise batteries um, effectively and make them kind of affordable for homeowners. So I think batteries are a whole new technology, a whole new range of opportunities, but also some challenges and, and safety is always something that, that we do have to keep in mind. So in, t in terms of regulation, what might get more batteries in there? I mean, there are a lot of options out there, which I'm sure a lot of people would be aware of. It'd be good to get your ideas on that. But I'm more interested in some of the things you mentioned earlier about time of use pricing and, and, and tariff changes. D does the existence of batteries or storage more broadly almost make a lot of these policy instruments that would work in a non-battery world redundant? Is, is Does time of use pricing become less important and, and, and should you take the focus away from it in a situation where you know batteries are going to be on the network? I think that's a, it's a really good question. I think you're kind of talking about different timelines there. I mean, time of use tariffs are something that we can roll out kind of immediately and help influence behaviour. But if we're looking at a future and we're looking where everyone has batteries, then maybe time of use tariffs don't become as important. But I think time of use tariffs have the potential to be important in terms of providing some kind of guidance for consumers to know when they are putting a lot of pressure on the peak, which maybe that pressure might be reduced by batteries, but of course the one step further from that is electric vehicles. And as soon as we're talking about something like peer-to-peer -peer trading, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, the use of the network is going to be kind of important in all of those applications.
locations unless someone wants to completely go off-grid. Um, so China's use tariffs uh, might evolve over time, but um, to, to kind of have different time periods and different weightings are hopefully reflecting um, accurate use of, of the network at different times. But I think something like EV is going to um, really require some more guidance for customers on, on appropriate time and usage. Um, so batteries in themselves um, can be used to work around that peak period and maybe time of use won't be as useful. But do we then end up with a situation where we end up having a morning peak because the batteries have uh, expired by the time you get to the morning and they haven't been charged by a PV system which isn't also providing electricity to the home. So I think that there's always the potential that once we have advanced metering infrastructure and people can get um, accurate feedback on their five minute, 30 minute, one hour electricity use, that we should use that information to help guide decision making. And I think that kind of the more technologies that come online, the more variable that peak could become, that, that there's all kinds of different things that might influence that peak consumption behaviour, um, particularly EVs, but even Internet of Things products um, that might have different weightings on the system. Well, that's a, that's a very nice sort of segue into to the next little bit of the discussion here, Genevieve. Um, and I just want to sort of talk about the sort of the value proposition um, because, you know, you sort of outlined earlier on that, you know, the, the risk with solar is that it could it could potentially increase the CapEx costs for a network having to accommodate it. It can decrease mm-hmm. revenues. Um, if we really look at the value proposition at the moment, you know, services like uh, the DEX platform that, that uh, you know, provide demand management um, really help to value add to a network or to a grid operator because the trading that occurs is all on their terms. As soon as we start transitioning towards some of the things you mentioned there, towards more to a sort of peer-to-peer uh, uh, network, what do we learn from the pushback that has occurred with small-scale solar that can be applied to the very slow, gradual implementation of these peer-to-peer networks? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I, think, I think the Take your time, Genevieve. I know it's a big one. It's yeah, not easy, I mean, breaking it down in terms of thinking kind of demand-side demand side management is huge and it's, it's something that people in energy circles have been talking about for such a long time. But without something like advanced metering um, and peer-to-peer exchanges and things like that, there, it wasn't easy to implement. You were kind of relying on um, a big load user who could be called up probably via telephone um, to be asked, pretty please, can you turn down your system? You know, you signed this contract that said you'd, you'd take load off when we requested it. Um, and, and that kind of never really worked because it was a little bit ad hoc and a little bit difficult. So now we've got this technology available and it's really exciting. There's, there's so much that everyone can do with it. And, then, and when I say everyone, I mean consumers, um, solar, battery, EV, salespeople, retailers. You've got this growth in kind of community renewable energy projects where they want to have community-based batteries. They want to have local solar um, retailers, electricity retailers. You then not kind of with the big boys in terms of the retailers the network operators, you've got the regulators, you've got the, the market operators as a whole. Um, and the big question really is, is who should be in charge if we're going to make the most efficient process happen? So I think it's actually quite a different 
challenge to, to what the network operators have been going through. Because when we talk about network operators, one of my theories in terms of the, the PhD it was a framework and it, and it was kind of saying that the network operators were the point at which PV lock in to the incumbent system. So they were acting as gatekeepers, essentially. But when you're talking about something like demand-side management, you're talking about a huge number of different players, a huge number of different kind of costs, a huge number of different opportunities and regulations that affect, you know, retailers, network operators, market participants and consumers. So it's really, it becomes a mixed bag of opportunities but also challenges. And I'm particularly mindful of, uh, you know, we're at the early stages for this process. A lot of my research was around diffusion of innovation theory. We know that Australia has, you know, a really reasonable number of early adopters who are hugely enthusiastic and have gone out and educated themselves. But my research suggested that the, the PV incentives pushed into the, what we call the early majority. And these are largely people who installed PV systems for economic reasons who weren't necessarily uh, or often didn't know much about how these PV systems as well. Um, and my research is always thinking about the consumer. And when I think about all of these peer-to-peer demand-side management, um, you know, charging the grid from the battery, etc., um, all of those great opportunities, I come back to, to what's best for the consumer. Um, and I wonder in terms of kind of, you know, you see in Victoria retailers maybe not doing the best thing for consumers. And I wonder how we can transition to this new framework, but in such a way that the the best outcomes are going to be achieved for the consumer. And that will be through reducing network costs, through taking advantage of technology. So, Genevieve, can I I just sort of pull you up on on just something there, and it flows on to the next question I've got for you. But but from a value, you know, I mentioned the sort of the – there's the potential that as we get more solar on, there's going to be some value destruction for the grid. You know, you mentioned before about the reduced income side of things. That is is likely to happen. What – did you do any research into looking at this? Because if you're a state-owned, you know, operator like uh, someone either in Queensland or in in Western Australia, you can kind of offset the loss in those assets because they're state-owned and you can take that loss knowing that you're going to reduce the bills for taxpayers and you can kind of accept that cannibalisation. Absolutely, yeah. If you are in Victoria and you have privately owned grids, there's no reason for those shareholders to want to accept that asset cannibalisation. And so, no. so, so there's a very different dynamic. So are these networks more likely to roll out in places where the grids are state-owned and what are the implications for non-state-owned assets? Well, I guess it really comes down to what I was getting to was this overarching discussion um, where the regulation lies and, and who allows the decision-making on top some of these peer-to-peer trading. Is it going to be the network or will the regulations change and kind of say like, networks have to suck it up and if something happens behind the meter then they may might not have a choice in terms of if if it does happen that that decisions have to be made in terms of uh, connection applications then obviously i think it's true that anything that came out and kind of my first four reasons why networks would push back that i think that that probably will continue to be a problem specifically in relation to um, yeah connection of, of different kind of appliances onto the network but I think having said that, um, as much as it's, it's easier in um, different states where you have state-owned uh, network assets, you've still got the problem that this is something which we know is on the paper every single day, that electricity is becoming something which is in 
the front of mind for Australian consumers. Um, and one of my pieces of research did look at the ways in which we can try to move on from a roadblock um, that is the current renewable energy policy. And one of the, the key fundamental points of that is being able to get a movement of people behind a particular um, message. And I think that if, if the public becomes educated enough about just solar technologies and if network utilities start to push back to the point that it becomes publicly known, that it becomes difficult to, to um, connect, there will be pushback that government will see. And I think that that is when um, things will get difficult for those privately owned network operators. Um, yeah. Government still has power. I mean, it's, it's difficult once you have decided to sell assets, um, but we still have a regulator, and a, if a regulator wants to start institutions instituting some kind of you know watchdog on unfair network practices i think we're a long way away from that obviously at the moment but i think that people do have the potential to have some kind of sway in this so long as as they can kind of be motivated behind a particular message but i think what victoria has shown us with their retailers is that people feel it in their hip pockets but don't really know what to do about it when uh, electricity prices go up that um they're probably not informed enough yet to be able to kind of form those arguments. You, you made a really interesting point there, You're suggesting perhaps that people might have a say in a democracy. That that's that that's quite, that could be considered controversial in you some don't tolerate that sort of talk. Uh, on yeah, the show, yeah, Anthony. Look, it's, it's getting more it's getting more controversial, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I, I mean, I, I we, we're it's about out of time, Genevieve. But I think it's really interesting to see how um, this electricity network thing has is almost starting from a different point than, say, something like the internet, where the internet was always about the network is owned by someone, but what runs on top of it, there is no restriction on. And then you see private internet bandwidth companies saying, well, look, Netflix is now 70% of the bandwidth that we're supporting. So we're basically subsidizing their business and we want, we want, we want in on that. And electricity is coming from the opposite end where they've controlled everything from the start, but they need to sort of loosen the the purse strings that will loosen the the controls over their network. So we we might see an interesting uh, convergence of how how those networks are managed uh, in in this new world of digital services. Oh, absolutely. And and really, I think, yeah, the digital services is is what's key. And whether you're talking about Netflix and interactions with broadband versus phone companies or whether you're talking about different kind of electric electricity use appliances like PV and battery you know it's it's technology and it's it's services to make people's lives easier um, and and hopefully kind of more enjoyable as well um, but it is happening so quickly uh, that it's it's difficult for people to respond to and you know kind of my key finding really which I think is really interesting is that technology is the starting point and after that it becomes how it unrolls is, is entirely social and it's about markets and it's about the way different stakeholders engage with each other and it's, it is about culture and people consuming products and sharing them with other people and building hype and what that means for behaviour and for the consequences to industry. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us today, Genevieve. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, visit us at bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. I'll be Matt Grantham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.